people think that you know their circ their circumstances, especially things like money, their material circumstances, make a bigger difference in their happiness than they than it really does. So so money does matter, but it just doesn't matter as much as we think it does. Welcome to the Mindful Wealth Podcast. Stop financializing everything. What is true wealth? What's the right metric for success? Much of how we live presupposes that our incomes or spending is a good measuring stick. But can you really quantify success with a bank balance? Or should we include softer things like learning and love, generosity and gratitude, and happiness and well-being? Welcome to the Mindful Wealth Podcast, where we seek advice to help us lead wealthier lives and extend success to a wider community. And now, your hosts, Jonathan Dio and Terry Shower. Hi there. Welcome to the seventh episode of the Mindful Wealth Podcast, our conversation with Dr. Sonia Lyubomirsky. Dr. Lyubomirsky is a distinguished professor in the Department of Psychology at University of California, Riverside, and the author of The How and of The Myths of Happiness. Tara and I wanted to talk with Sonia about a few of the mistakes we make in our search for happiness and some of the things we can do instead that might create better outcomes in our lives. Please enjoy the conversation with Dr. Sonia Lyubomirsky. Okay, welcome back to the, uh, to the Mindful Wealth Podcast. We have a great guest today. We have Sonia Lyubomirsky. Lubomirsky, I think I got it right the second time, uh, which is my hope. And uh, we, we're really excited to talk about, you know, the myths of, the how of, and just happiness in general, the things that can lead us to happiness and the things that pull us away from happiness that we think might get us there. Um, so Terry, you want to kick us off? Yeah, for sure. So Sonia, thanks for being with us today. And uh, we want to just start off with like kind of a super general question. So people might recognize you as the author of The How of Happiness and The Myths of Happiness. Before we get into like some of the specifics of that, is there anything you'd want to share about your current projects? Um, first of all, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, well, I, I study happiness. So um, it's all about happiness. And I've been studying happiness for more than 30 years, believe it or not. Um, currently, I think I'm more focused on connection, you know, connecting with other people, or it can be with something bigger than ourselves. Um, that and I think connection is really the secret to happiness. It's what makes life worth living. But it's that's all, all, all very relevant to um, to questions about you know what makes people happy. You know what are the benefits of happiness and, and how can we become happier. One of the, I mean one of the core ideas behind our podcast is that we're all seeking what what I'll call true wealth, but it could be you know successful life or it could be authentic well being. And I know that lots of your work is about happiness and well-being. Could you just at the outset define what that is? What What is happiness? Sure, sure. Very, very important question to start with. So happiness basically has two components. And I think of these two components as being happy in your life and being happy with your life. Being happy with your life is basically being satisfied with your life. You know, feeling like your life is good, that you're progressing towards your goals in a time good, at a good pace. Um, but being happy in your life um, ha is the experience of positive emotions, right? So happy people experience positive emotions like joy, pride, contentment, curiosity, tranquility, you know, on a fairly frequent basis, like not all the time. And of course, happy people experience negative emotions too, which are adaptive and functional, sort of when they're not too acute or not too chronic. Um, so anyway, that, that's sort of, those are the two components of happiness. Okay. 
Um, so I wanted to just maybe, uh, you know, pull on a little bit of something that you mentioned in the how of happiness, because since this is a podcast about um, mindful wealth, we both come from investment backgrounds. I, I have a real estate background, Jonathan, from, from financial investing. And, you know, I was surprised to read that according to your research, the material circumstances of people's lives seem to only account for 10% of the overall happiness quotient. And what strikes me as interesting is that, you know, when you look at the way people pursue happiness, especially in our fields, it's as if we act as if 90% of our happiness is determined by our circumstances. And so I wonder if maybe you could just say a little bit about that and about how we might actually be diminishing our happiness when we pursue circumstances too aggressively. That's a great question. And I, first, of all, first of all, I wanted to talk about the numbers. I think we should not use numbers to describe the, these, these findings. Um, I actually have kind of regretted using them because people take them sort of too seriously, but they're really based on estimates and it really depends, you know, what, you know how you look at the data and what, 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 what the evidence is. So, but like aside from the numbers, that, that is a truth that people think that, you know, their, circ their circumstances, especially things like money, their material circumstances, make a bigger difference in their happiness than they than it really does. So that's kind of the, the main the main finding. Um, now money and wealth does matter to happiness. Do matter to happiness. I, I do want to say that, especially when you're poor, right? So money really is really important to happiness when it prevents us from being poor or when it buffers us from like, you know, illness and sort of adversity. Um, but then, you know, as, as you get wealthier, money doesn't matter to our happiness or, or our circumstances don't matter to our happiness as much as as like we think they do, but they still matter. Actually, really interestingly, if you make a million dollars a year, you're happier than someone who makes half a million. And people who make 50 million are happier than those who make 25 million, which is an interesting question in itself, why that is. Um, it maybe has, that has something to do with the, the status of it. Um, so, so money does matter, but it just doesn't matter as much as we think it does. And I think another point to make is, well, a couple points. One is it matters what you do with it, right? So people who spend uh, their money or just sort of whatever comforts they have in their life on um, you know connecting with other people and contributing to society on philanthropy on personal growth like learning something traveling they're happier than people who spend their money on sort of just amassing amassing lots of sort of possessions um, and the other issue that's important is that what's interesting is that people who are materialistic um, are less happy than those who are not so like the pursuit of material things is associated with unhappiness but having the material things is actually associated with a little bit more happiness. So it's really the pursuit. So if you're just sort of, if you have these sort of extrinsic goals where you're just kind of pursuing these kind of extrinsic things like money, by the way, those also include things like fame, power, beauty. Uh, people who pursue those things are less happy than people who kind of pursue more kind of internal things and the things that I mentioned like before, like connecting with other people, growing as a person, uh, and helping others. So if, uh, if I can just like pull on a little bit of something there, you say, um, we talk a lot in, the, in this podcast about the internal and the external, right? Like internal conditions, external conditions, internal goals, external goals. Um, how might one frame things more in terms of internal goals, first of all? And secondly, if we're looking at how to effectively ensconce the pursuit of wealth in a happy life, how might we do that? Okay, great question. So first of all, yeah, internal, external is also, um, these are also terms that, that we researchers in, on, in the science of happiness use too, because and it's kind of a cliche, but the, the general findings that happiness is more internal than external in the sense that it comes from within. You know, so you can, you can see, you can find two people in the same circumstances and one person is maybe a lot happier than the other, and that, that has to do with sort of how they, 
how they like behave and think in their daily life. So that's kind of the internal part of happiness. The external is sort of what their life circumstances are, right? Like, you know, the size of their house and whether they're married and how healthy they are and uh, you know, how old they are. Um, another way to think about it is in terms of intrinsic and extrinsic goals. And I think it's a term that I already use. So intrinsic goals are just goals, like I mentioned, like about personal growth and connection and, and helping, whereas extrinsic goals are really more about like materialism, power, beauty, fame. Um, and so if I were to give advice about, you know, how to pursue happiness and how to, um, and sort of the role of wealth in happiness, it's kind of like irrelevant to what I, what I said earlier, which is that, that don't sort of, um, it's fine to have the, to have wealth as kind of a byproduct, right? So maybe you're, you're, you have a career and, but you really enjoy your career and you're doing it for the sake of learning and, and, and maybe making the world a better place, but also you're making money and that's great, you know, and that's great to, to be comfortable. And then once you have the, the wealth, you know, again, as I mentioned, like spending that money, it matters what you spend the money on, right? So if you spend that money on, on helping others, whether it's philanthropy or whether it's like taking your nephew to the zoo or something, um, then you're gonna be a happier person. So basically it's a little bit of like ironic that, you know, if you wanna make yourself happy, you wanna to try to make other people happy, you know, by whether it's using your wealth or using your time. I think, I think somebody said givers gain once. I think that makes a lot of sense, right? So just, it seems strange. I, I think I caught you and you said, you said this a second ago where you, the pursuit of wealth hurts. But when you have wealth, that's good. So there's there's a conundrum there. Is that social hierarchy? Is that I'm I feel like I'm better than them, so I'm I I feel happier. Um, uh, how how does that work in sort of relative poverty, lack of privilege, you know, comparison to peers? You know, how does the, how do those things make unhappiness or happiness come about? Yes, yeah, so all all of these are really really good great factors, really important factors that you mentioned. Um, so first of all. The pursuit of wealth. So we're talking really about kind of like an an almost like a personality characteristic. Like people who have that. You know, we all know people who have sort of that type of personality where they're just like they just care about sort of you know more money. And again, it's not just wealth. It's also things like fame and beauty and power. Um, and so, sort of caring about those things, which are those extrinsic goals, those type of people tend to be unhappy people. So it could be kind of a personality characteristic. Um, but, but if you, again, like if you're pursuing in other things, like you wanna make a better, like this is sort of a, a cliche, like in Silicon Valley, people are starting all these companies because they wanna make a better a world a better place, but they're also making tons of money. Um, but though, though that kind of individual is gonna be happier, right? Because they're not doing it for the money, but they happen to, money is like a great side benefit. Um, and then in terms of once you have money, you, know, you mentioned social comparison. So what happens is there's a phenomenon called hedonic adaptation. Right, or the hedonic treadmill you may know about. And this is this remarkable ability that we humans have to get used to positive changes in our lives. Negative changes too, but mostly positive changes. So, so when we move into a bigger house, even when we get married or, or I don't know, um, uh, get a new job, at first we get this huge boost in happiness, and then we sort of adapt, we get used to it, and then we want more. And you can argue that this is evolutionarily adaptive, right? That if human beings kind of we're just sort of satisfied with like any goal and just sort of stop right there. We would like fail to achieve. So it's good to kind of continue to want to progress and achieve, but it has these sort of disadvantages, these costs, right? That, that once we achieve something, like so once we move into the bigger house, then we start comparing ourselves to our neighbors who might live in houses that are even bigger than ours, right? In a new neighborhood and might drive cars that are nicer than ours. Um, and so, so social comparison is really critical. 
And then the other critical factor is sort of our expectations or aspirations. So now our expectations are higher. And, and just that, I, I was thinking about this, this friend of mine who moved into like what I would say a mansion, you know, like really, you know, they're, you know, they're very well off. And so I, I talked to her and she was complaining how you know, now she has friends who have private jets. Uh, you know, but she doesn't. You know, she, she travels first class, but that's not good enough anymore. So that's kind of an extreme example, but that's, but we all kind of do that, right? Like we, we move into a, 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 whatever, a nicer neighborhood. Like people will move into nicer neighborhoods than they can afford, like for their kids, because the schools are better. But then they have these sort of, there's costs to that because of this social comparison. Actually, I was one of those kids where I was, I went to a private school, like on a full scholarship, and it was great. It was an amazing school, but, you know, the, the kids were like, flying to Paris on the weekends. And I was like this poor kid who, you know, could barely afford anything. So that sort of comparison is really powerful. Wow. It's, I think this is such like great material for like the progress of, of, you know, our understanding. I don't know. I'm just having like a great, great material here. <laughs> um, so I want to ask you about uh, ambition because that's also something that comes up uh, a lot for us. So one thing is like, you know, we talk about the external markers of wealth. So like the bank balance, um, I come from a sports background. So like the medals, um, and how do you see ambition fitting in? Because it seems to me to be this kind of like double-edged sword where on the one hand, it does push us to attain maybe new heights and to grow. But on the other hand, it can be sort of a negative force when it causes you to fixate on outcomes. So great question. So I guess I would say moderation is good at everything, kind of like the Aristotle's idea of the golden mean. So I think ambition is good when it's, um, uh, but with too much ambition might not be good, right? So, so I think ambition and good is good in the sense that lots of research shows that goal pursuit, uh, you know, is associated with happiness, right? So, so happy people always have something around the corner that they're looking forward to, that they're pursuing. And ambition is basically goal pursuit, right? Like you want, you have these goals, you have these dreams, and you want to achieve them. And people who are more ambitious are happier but of course, like if you're too ambitious or if you're a perfectionist where nothing is satis satisfies you. Um, my colleague Tal Ben-Shahar has this book called The Pursuit of Perfect, which is all about perfectionism. Um, and he was, I believe, the, the best squash player. He's Israeli. He was the best squash player in Israel. And, but that didn't make him happy because then he wanted to be the best squash player in the world. And so but that was a little bit extreme. And there's nothing wrong with, with wanting that. But if you feel like you'll, you'll, you won't be happy unless you have that dream achieved, then that has costs. So, so yeah, so I guess my, my answer is sort of uh, everything in moderation. So, I mean, it, it sounds like, and just tell me if this is the, the best way to sort of uh, sum that little piece up. It sounds like happiness can't be a target. It sounds like, like I talk about with clients all the time, clients, you know, wealth can't be your target. If wealth is your target, you're going to be, you, you may get wealth, but you're going to lose your life. You're not going to be happy, right? Is, is does happiness fit in the same category? If I if I really want to be happy, I can't try to be happy. Like if because I, I try to be happy, it pulls me away from happiness. Yeah, great question. And by the way, that's great advice that you give about wealth not being a target. Which is kind of what we're talking about, like the pursuit of wealth, right? Is associated with unhappiness. Yeah, I mean, I, I mostly agree, but I think there's a way to make happiness a target without kind of obsessing over it. It's kind of like when you are trying to become more fit or lose weight. Like that is a target, right? Like losing weight. But, but, but don't like focus on it too much. Just focus on like, you know, having better ha habits and sort of, you know, on a daily basis. So, so people want to be happy. Like you can have that goal in your mind. You know, I want to be happier, but then, you know, really what do you do on a daily basis? You're pursuing different kinds of activities or strategies, techniques 
that make you happier. So it might be, it might be you're, you're going to try to be more grateful, you're going to pursue goals, you're going to exercise more, you're going to savor good things in your life. And so you kind of focus on a daily basis on those, on those sort of activities that will get you there, just like the person pursuing wealth is really just focusing on their job. You know, but you know, I think it's okay sort of in the back of your mind to think, and I'm doing all of these things to be, to be happy. But if you're too obsessed you know, and, and sort of focused on that goal, and you're, and you're monitoring yourself too much, right? Am I happy yet? Am I happy yet? Am I wealthy yet? Am I wealthy yet? Right? Um, that, or, or, you know, like weigh, it's like weighing yourself on the scale like four times a day. You don't want to do that. Um, then that's going to have uh, sort of detrimental. It, I mean, it, it sounds like all of those things that lead to happiness, there are goals in themselves. Happiness isn't, isn't the goal. It's just we know research, the research you've done, other people have done. If I do these things, I get to be happier. So I, my goal is to do those things. And then the happiness like the wealth ensues. The happiness comes from the life well lived. It's not the target. Exactly. And there's lots of quotes from like famous philosophers and writers and the fa- happiness is a byproduct you know, right. that, that kind of are saying the, the exact same thing. Yeah, I mean, and I think this is kind of like a, a nice segue. I um, so I, I have this friend, uh, like a millennial friend, who talks about how she feels so much pressure to always. Sorry, you're friends with a millennial. I know <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> um, who you know talks about that she feels this immense pressure to always be self improving, always be doing positive activities. And, you know, she mentions that it's as if this constant weight of pressure of doing things that are like considered to be positive actually takes away from her happiness. And, you know, you, you mentioned this in a recent paper that you authored with uh, Annie Reagan. I wonder if you could maybe just say a few words about that for the benefit of my millennial friend and everyone else like her. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, I have a, a couple of papers on, on sort of how the pursuit of happiness might backfire. Um, and again, getting back to sort of this, everything is good in moderation. If you're too focused on that goal, you know, it, you're gonna, your standards might be too high, so then you might actually be unhappy when you fail to achieve sort of that level of happiness that you want to achieve. Um, if you monitor yourself too much, as I already mentioned, am I happy yet? Am I happy yet? That's gonna have detrimental consequences. If you compare yourself to others, like oh, that person's happier than me. And then also, if you look at particular strategies that people use to become happier, those might backfire too. So for example, take um, doing acts of kindness for others, you know, helping others. I mentioned now several times how contributing to society, you know, helping your community, helping others makes people happy. We know this to be true, but we also all know people who are sort of too giving, right? They're like, they're like too giving of themselves and, and neglect their own kind of self-care. Or when you help others, sometimes that, that helping might backfire, might not be you know, perceived uh, positively, uh, or um, we might actually feel kind of exploited or taken advantage of. So, so that so like particular things we do to become happier could backfire. Gratitude is another example. I, I do lots of research on gratitude because it's something it really works, you know, in that it, it sort of helps us not take things for granted. We were just talking about sort of more wealth, right? If we're grateful for our new car or our new house and try to maintain that sense of gratitude, we might not adapt to it, sort of get used to it as, as fast. Um, but gratitude can backfire too. It might, it might make us feel indebted to other people, you know, if we're sort of uh, constantly thinking about how like, oh, this person has supported me so much, but maybe I haven't paid back. It might make us feel almost like embarrassed that like we need sort of we need all this help in the first place. It humbles us. Actually, humility is an interesting thing because it that could be positive actually. Sort of to feel like it's not just about you. You're standing on the shoulders of giants, you know. And so, um, so that's not necessarily a negative thing. But anyway, so both sort of the pursuit of happiness overall and the, and the particular sort of activities that you do to become happier could backfire. So we just have to be 
cognizant of that, and like it doesn't mean you don't do them. You just sort of you you kind of monitor yourself and sort of see whether whether things are working. You know, I'm, I'm all in favor of kind of me search. You know, so your your millennial friend could, could sort of try different things and sort of and maybe even like keep a, a diary or journal of like how she's feeling every day and seeing what works and what doesn't. So one of one of my big roles in this in this uh, podcast pair is uh, uh, I'm not religious, but I've studied spirituality and studied religion for years and years and years and years. And in both um, Buddhism, Buddhism and and I was raised Lutheran and I studied Buddhism in grad school for for many years. Good works are important, right? So and you know the connection between well being and Aristotelian eudaimonia, uh, well doing. I think you've mentioned it a little bit, but can you peel the onion back a little bit more? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great, uh, a great way to put it. My colleague Ken Sheldon has a paper basically saying how, yeah, it's really, it's really well, eudaimonic well-being is really well-doing. It's sort of what you're doing to, to live a sort of a flourishing, you know, a full life, rich life. And then well-being is really more kind of how you feel about it. It's sort of how, sort of that subjective feeling of happiness. And they mostly go to, I guess one of my, you know, the, a lot of people talk about how there's sort of this, Hedonic happiness, which is sort of more like pleasure, and then eudaimonic happiness, which is sort of the, this good kind of happiness, uh, like meaning and engagement. But really, they almost always go together, you know, because it feels good to have meaning in your life. Like when you're doing, when you're doing the well doing, feels good too. I mean, it's not always, right? Like you could be. There's the Mother Teresa example is kind of the uh, the counter example, right? Because she and apparently she was clinically depressed, so maybe that's not a good example. But but she was doing all these really really hard things, so. You know, so maybe in the moment you're not happy, but maybe let's just say in general when you look at your life, you, you are happy because you're sort of you know making the world a better place. So anyway, most of the time, well doing and well being kind of go together; they're correlated. So, so something just struck me that both earlier on in the conversation you mentioned the work you're doing on connection, uh, and right now well being and well doing how those kind of uh, interrelate. How does in Buddhism there's this concept of dependent co-origination where we're all basically we're all in this together. All the plants and trees, all the humans and animals, everyone's kind of in this together. And it seems like the more we recognize that, the better off we are. But I love that term. Wow, I haven't heard that dependent co-origination. Absolutely, in the sense of um, you know one of the most basic human needs is the need to belong. Yeah. Um, you know this idea that yeah this idea that we belong as part of a community as a tribe. Obviously, there's evolutionary explanations for why that's so important. Right, that we wouldn't have survived as a species if we didn't band together and help each other. And so, yes, yeah, so this idea that we're all in it together. Actually, when you said that, I was actually thinking of COVID. That, that at the very beginning of the pandemic, actually loneliness. We 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 have some data showing that loneliness went down, uh, which is which is a little surprising because people were isolated. But my explanation is that we kind of felt like we're all in the same boat. You know, we're oh my god, this is all happening to us, and and uh, we're all kind of. Doesn't matter if you're different, if you're a different ethnicity, or you live in a different country. We're like all together in the same boat. Um, but I absolutely, yeah, I agree. Connection is, is so important, and you can think of connection at so many different levels, right? You can, you can be a connection with a stranger that you just you, you make eye contact and you know exactly. Yeah, so sometimes that happens. You make eye contact and you know exactly what that person is thinking, and that's just like a beautiful, brief moment of connection, which also makes you feel like we're all human, we're all in it together. And it could be connecting with a partner, a friend, or it could be connecting with a higher cause or with God, you know, with, with whatever, you know, with, with lots of, with an organization. 
But, you know, that kind of makes me think, like, you, you know, you mentioned, uh, like, we, we look at how spirituality fits into this. And, you know, uh, Jonathan, with his, his experience, I've, uh, I also studied Buddhism. I, you know, I've become, become more interested in, in Islam of late. But a lot of these spiritual traditions really have a lot of practices that involve doing good works, that involve connection. And it could be connection with a higher power or connection to your community. And I wonder, like... If you, like you guys are sort of coming at it from this like empirical like research perspective, and yet on the other hand, you have these spiritual traditions that have already kind of built things around that. And I wonder maybe if you could do you, do you have you thought about the connections between those two things? Yeah, I mean it's not a coincidence. In fact, I, I often I often sometimes I'll get an email that says everything you're doing is in the Bible. Like everything you're studying is in the Bible. You know, forgiveness, gratitude, connection, obviously. And, and that, that's not a coincidence, right? So these are things that are important, you know, for to, as part of being human, and you know, they satisfy our basic human needs, and that is, you know, it's not surprising that that would also contribute to happiness. And so I see my role and my colleagues' role as as kind of just empirically sort of showing that these things are important. So so we kind of so maybe these spiritual traditions tell us that helping is important. By the way, helping is important not just because it makes us happy. Obviously, because it's like, it's a, we're doing good and, you know, it helps others. Happiness is sort of a byproduct of that. Like, it's great that it makes us happy. Uh, I mean, kind of similarly, like, sex feels good, but, like, really the point of it is to reproduce, right? So it's not, so, it's not surprising that it feels good. So, um, but anyway, yeah, so, I, I, so our role is just kind of to do this sort of systematic empirical research that, that shows, like, yeah, like, th these things actually make us happy. Um, uh, whereas the tradition, the spiritual traditions, kind of giving more like uh, they're more about I guess prescriptions right sort of telling telling you know guiding us to to how to, to live I wonder if I could just like kind of switch gears a little bit and ask like a more sort of personal question I mean if you've spent so much time studying happiness what kind of effect has that had on how you live your life I mean are you a happier person and and do, do you have you changed the things that you do as you uh, have new research findings yeah so it's a great question um well well, first of all, I'm already a pretty happy person to begin with. I mean, not like super happy, but like, you know, on, a, on the higher side. Um, so I'm not sure if it actually has made me happier, although just the, the job is great, right? Like studying happiness for a living, so that maybe that has made me happier. Um, but, but certainly it does influence me sometimes day to day in that like when I'm studying something, like well, one of my, my, the best examples is when I was writing the book, The How of Happiness, I had you know a chapter on every on different kinds of happiness strategies, and I did find myself like kind of it was kind of funny. Um, like in the kindness chapter, I'm like, oh, I'm going to do some more acts of kindness, and in the forgiveness chapter, maybe I should forgive this person, and you know the goal pursuit happiness. You know, like it's sort of when you're immersed in, in these in these activities and sort of studying them, it makes you it makes you kind of do it more in your own life. Um, but you know, but most of the time, the work is is it's. You know, it's just kind of scientific research. So I'm like analyzing data, or I'm writing something up. So I and I try to actually separate my personal sort of life and, and beliefs from the research, right? Because it could actually have a negative effect, right? I could bias the research if I'm too, you know, um, like if I, if I have like really really strong hypotheses. And so actually, that's partly why the backfiring research was interesting to me. So when I, if I find that gratitude actually sometimes makes people less happy, like I think that's super interesting, and I'm not gonna like. You know, be unhappy about that and not publish that, right? Because I, I have this sort of preconceived notion that gratitude has to be good at all times. So we we just have a couple minutes left, and I'm just I'm curious. I want to give you a chance to talk about 
current research, some future research thoughts that you might have, something you're going to look into and, and, and sort of give us a preview? Um, sure. Well, what we do, um, I already mentioned some research on connection where we're trying to understand how to foster connection between people. And my favorite theory in that area is by a colleague of mine, Harry Reese uh, from University of Rochester. It's called partner responsiveness theory. And he argues that the key to relationships or the key to connection is making the other, is when, when both partners feel understood, cared for, and valued. And I think feeling understood is really important. And how do you make uh, a person feel understood, say, in a conversation? Um, and it's by sort of showing authentic interest in them, and it's through a series of self-disclosures. Um, so it's like it's it's yes, I find that that really fascinating. Sort of how do you how do you feel understood? You know, how do you make the other person feel understood, and how do you show authentic interest when 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 maybe the person is, doesn't seem very interesting at first, right? Like you kind of have to ask the right questions to get them to to reveal something about themselves that is truly interesting. So I'm interested, anyway, so I'm interested in connection. Um, we also have a line of research on the effects of technology on happiness. And so actually I was just thinking like just yesterday I was editing a paper by one of my students about on the effects of sort of smartphone use and social media use on people's happiness. And there's lots of controversy in that area because lots of the research is correlational, so we don't know kind of where the causality is. And, and some of the effects are really small. So, so teenagers who use a lot, who spend a lot of time on their phones are a little bit less happy, but we don't know why and the effect is small. So we actually just did a big experiment where we asked um, college students, who are kind of the right age for this, uh, to restrict their digital media or social media use to see if that makes them happier. And I will maybe not tell you the results just yet, kind of leave it as a surprise. But but uh, we need kind of more experimental work in that area. Um, so I'm I'm really interested in that. So I don't know, but, but I don't, lots of stuff going on. I could talk for a couple hours about uh, as a first. as a. As a parent of a 16 and a 13 year old, I want to know, I want that paper like yesterday or maybe six months ago, please. I'll send it on. <laughs> um, okay, well, Sonia, we uh, are very grateful for the time you've given us today. Um, this has been a really fascinating conversation and hopefully will be of value to our listeners. Um, is there anything you want to say as far as where people should, you know, follow you or get in touch with your ideas? Uh, great. Uh, well, I have, I have one website, which is my, my, my name.com, sonialubomirsky.com, which I know is hard to spell, uh, or um, there's another one that's Dr. Sonia. Um, but that, that sonialubomirsky.com basically has like everything, all my papers too, that can just sort of be downloaded for free. Um, so yeah, anyone can go to those websites. Okay, well, Sonia, thanks so much for uh, being generous with your time, and uh, we'll uh, be seeing you. Great, thank you. Thanks, Sonia. Thanks for listening to the Mindful Wealth Podcast. I hope you took a couple actionable notes. As you go back into the world, consider creating better goals for yourself in terms of personal growth, human connection, and just making the world a better place. You may be surprised by the differences this can make in your life. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe and share with anyone who may be curious about blending these two topics of wealth and mindfulness. And please tune into our next episode where we're going to ask a Sufi teacher about true wealth. Thanks for listening to the Mindful Wealth Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, remember to give us a rating and leave a comment, subscribe, and share. You can find Jonathan at mindful.money, and you'll find Terry at terryshower.com. Their books, Mindful Money and Mindful Landlord, are available on Amazon. Look to the show notes for our guests' contact info and any links discussed in today's episode.